experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman from the XML Financial Group. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about what we do, you can visit our website, which is xmlfg.com. Once again, it's xmlfg.com. Today, I'm going to dispense with the market talk because I have something I want to share with you. My view on the market really hasn't changed over the last couple of weeks, so you can go back and listen to the last show if you're interested. But last week, I was on the phone with Andrew Howard. Andrew is what I consider an insurance guru. And he had a lot of good insight on the questions I had regarding things like homeowners insurance, umbrella policies, even cyber insurance. So I thought I'd play that back for you today. Here it is. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess the best way or the best place to start would be for you to just tell us about uh, Howard Insurance, the, the type of work you do there. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, Eric, and thank you again. Always good to talk to you, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. So Howard Insurance is a, a privately held uh, risk management and insurance advisory firm, and we've been in business for about uh, just over 75 years. We are based in Washington with a few offices down the East Coast, and clients are national and international, and we basically do everything except uh, employee benefits or health insurance. So we focus our work around private client insurance, which is uh, higher end or complex personal insurance, homeowners, auto collections, commercial insurance for small businesses to public companies uh, with a heavy focus within real estate. And then our life insurance practice sits over top of both of those because you have planning for you know, personal reasons, but also corporate planning for uh, owners, key individuals, succession, uh, all that good stuff. So uh, as I said in the beginning, all things except health insurance, um, we don't deal with that directly. We have partners uh, that handle that for our clients and uh, busy being focused on doing what we do. Yeah, terrific. And what's the current state of the insurance market? <laughs> It's a great question. So uh, it's a little bit of a mess, and, and this preceded COVID. So uh, in in the insurance world, the um, like in your world, you talk about a bull and bear market. In, in my world, it is a hard market or soft market. Right. Uh, and we are in the hardest market in history. Um, you know, folks may remember having insurance issues sort of post 9-11. Um, the state that we're in now has sort of made post 9-11 look like a speed bump. When you so, say, uh, go ahead. When, when you say hard market, does that mean mm -hmm. the availability of insurance is has dried, dried up and the premiums? Have yeah, mainly around, that's right, mainly around um, you know, the property and casualty markets. So uh, it means that there's, uh, you're exactly right, there's um, less capacity, meaning less uh, insurance companies' hands going up with a willingness to write something um, and much higher pricing. And so, uh, put simply, in 2017, because a lot of these things take a little while to you know, mature, but in 2017, we had those three hurricanes in Florida, Irma, and a couple others. And they, while 
you know, uh, terrible, they weren't Hurricane Katrina, right? They were in the news and all, but it wasn't, you know, people remember them, but not like Katrina. Uh, you pair that, uh, when you roll those three together, the total damage was a hundred billion worse than Katrina. So, uh, there was that mixed with the flooding, you know, you had issues in Texas and sort of all over there and the panhandle and then the California wildfires that, you know, of course that state in Colorado won't stop burning. So, uh, when you total all of that up, um, and it takes a while for the dust to settle financially. Right. Um, it was a, a really, you know, bad run of time. And that takes a couple of years to sort of hit, uh, sort of the, the insurance markets, uh, you know, commercially, and then all the way down to you and I's homeowners insurance. Right. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned homeowners. You know, I went through this process a couple of years ago where I started looking at my homeowners insurance because I never really did it before. I just, you know, bought the policy and assumed that my house, actually I have two houses, um, a little vacation property, but anyhow, I just assumed when I bought the policy, I was covered anything happened to the house, um, you know, the, the insurance company would take for, uh, take care of it. But I found out that's not necessarily true, you know? Um, so what do you see are the most common gaps in coverage regarding homeowners insurance? Yeah. A lot of what we see, um, you know, and, and uh, God love you for going through the process. Right. So, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's Greek. It's another language. Um, folks are, are best served having an advisor, um, managing through that process. There's a lot of fine print and a lot of uh, holes that can be in these policies that need to be filled. So uh, the most common we see with homeowners insurance uh, typically stems around water damage. Water really is the enemy. While we're all sort of conditioned to think, you know, house burning to the ground, uh, that's less than a two percenter. Um, you know, in, in reality, the, the challenges are around water. And when I say that, um, most folks are covered if they have a pipe burst in their house for whatever reason. Um, more what we're always looking for are, are two things. One, the coverage limit for water backup of sewers and drains. That's a really big and really common thing where, you know, uh, water backs up from the line into the house, into the basement, ruins the basement, uh, or causes the toilet to overflow and, and ruin uh, you know, the house. So, um, a lot of insurance companies and, you know, not to pick on anybody, but mainly the ones you see on TV, right. uh, will cap water backup of sewers and drains at a sublimit of, you know, 5,000 or 10,000. And if anyone's ever been through this, that's basically the first phone call to a serve pro or service master before they've even entered the house, you've blasted right. through that limit. Right. Right. That's so I tell people, that's right. So, right. So I tell people, uh, you know, insurance companies don't put a cap on that because it doesn't happen. They cap it because it does happen. Right. Uh, so to think, you know, in, in that sort of offensive way, um, consumers need to look for that limit. If it doesn't match the dwelling limit on the house, they need to call the carrier and say, what would it cost to do so? Um, that's a critical coverage. We've paid out heavy, heavy, heavy hundreds of thousands of dollars losses, uh, in that category. And, you know, for example, if that happens to you, Eric, and you're at your vacation place and you come home, the water coming out the front door, that's not a 10 grand problem. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a heavy six figure problem. So, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, as it relates to water is mother nature. So, uh, flood now, you know, a lot of the majority of floods happen in non-flood zones. So, 
a lot of people think flooding in the house, they think of sort of pipes bursting. Um, in this instance, I'm talking about heavy surface water flooding. So, uh, you know, a lot of the infrastructure across the country, but even around here in our DC area is very old. There's been a lot of development of new housing and, and the systems underground, you know, can't handle the volume of the intensity of the rainwaters that we've been getting, especially the last decade. So when that happens and water has nowhere to go but into the house um, or the basement, um, the only way that's covered is through flood insurance. So we're, we are always speaking to our clients about uh, flood insurance, even again, non-beach house, non-flood zone, because it can happen anywhere. So it's always worth looking at. And when you're not a coastal property, it's very cost effective. It's not a super expensive endeavor to you know cover that risk. Some clients will tell me they're at the top of a four-sided hill and they've been there 30 years and water's never come anywhere close to their house. And, and that's fine, uh, but we're still going to talk about it. Uh, most people know somebody that that's happened to. Right. So it's possible, going back to the, the, the backup of the sewer and the toilets and stuff, so I can actually go back to my uh, insurance carrier, see what the, the cap is. And if there is one, if right. I, if I think that I need more, I can actually purchase more. With most companies, you can, not all, uh, but most. And so I use that as a sort of benchmark for success, meaning um, if, if the call was made, you know, and, and the insurance, if, let's say that I just did a review for someone and said, hey, um, you know, nip here, tuck there, and, and call the carrier and ask that question. If they come back to me and say they can't because they're, they don't have the ability, that particular insurance company, that's sort of a key indicator of, okay, m maybe we're not where we should be. Right. Yeah. And let's look, let's look elsewhere. Right. right. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a big proponent, uh, change gears a little bit here. I'm a big proponent of everyone having a financial plan, right? I think that's probably one of, of the important things for someone's financial success. And that's the first thing that we do with our clients is to sit down and come up with a financial plan. And almost inevitably, the conversation turns to uh, umbrella liability, umbrella policies. Yes. Um, we typically recommend that someone have it or look at it, you know, but I want your take on how someone should decide how much umbrella liability they should have. Yeah, it's a great question and, and, a, and a very common one from the financial planning community, because um, as you said, you know, when, when you're looking at, you know, a client's financial plan and, and their long term goals, um, you're thinking, you know, uh, big picture problems, right? right. Uh, not, you know, the $10,000 one I mentioned. So we're, we're worried about with Umbrella, a, a you know, a lawsuit or let, let's let's use a common one, a, a bad car accident where your client injures somebody. Uh, the cost of medical these days, you know, will will blow right through their auto insurance limits. And that's why we all recommend that, that folks carry umbrella, which runs, you know, a million dollar to a hundred million plus, um, you know, in, in options. So in that vast array of, you know, how do I know how much is enough? It's, there's a real art and science to it, Eric. So, you know, we, we look at, um, you know, when you and I are speaking, it is, it's okay. What is the client's total net worth? Not just what they have, you know, liquid invested, but, but pile it all up on the table, the real estate, all of it. 
that we define as sort of our exposure. And I'm not going to get technical here with things being in trust or outside of the estate or any of that. Let's just keep it simple. Sure. Uh, we pile it all up on the table. Uh, and let's say someone, there's two scenarios. Let's say someone is worth, you know, $40 million. They're uh, retirement age, the, the kids are grown and out of the house, so they're not driving anymore. So we're not worried about that exposure. We, we don't have any rental properties. Um, we, we live a, a modest you know, lifestyle, not super high risk, uh, but we still have a big target on our back, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in that scenario, we stir those ingredients you know, all into the pot. And then we're also looking, because we're all consumers of this, what is, what is our, our price of umbrella? You know, so we'd look at, you know, for that type of client, 10 million, 15 million, 20. Uh, let's, let's start there, look at the options. And, um, you know, so when we talk about total net worth, um, exposure, lifestyle, those kind of things, uh, and then the risk tolerance of that client, we never really recommend tracking net worth with umbrella dollar for dollar because that gets a little kooky, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the larger the client uh, net worth. But, uh, you know, we, we start there, then it's a risk tolerance. You know, we, we, we have some clients who, you know, are very risk averse and, and may, you know, that $40 million client that's really risk averse might want, you know, 30 million, you know, um, or, or 40, let's say. And then they'll look at the pricing on that and say, well, hmm, let's talk through, you know, worst case scenario here. And, and, you know, does $20 million solve a lot of problems? So that's sort of scenario A. The other side of the coin is sort of what I would call the emerging wealth client, where you have someone that's worth, let's say $3 million, but, um, you know, they're, they're still young. They're still going to be working. You're helping them grow and expand their net worth. Uh, they just had a teenage driver come on board. They still have a couple rental condos in the mix. That type of client, um, their exposure may technically outweigh their net worth, right? So uh, a, a teenage driver, you know, uh, can easily, you know, cause damage out, out on the road. And, you know, we may price, let's say, $3 million and $5 million for that client because of the exposure they have sort of, you know, uh, potentially outweighing. They could be sued for based on sort of what they have going on. Um you know, for more than their net worth. And so we, we price, let's say 3 million and 5 million. And especially in that first 5 million, Eric, where it gets less expensive per million as you get to five, if it's an $80 a year difference to go from three to five, 10 out of 10 clients are just doing the five, right? right? So, so that's what I say. We're, we're consumers of this stuff. We sort of stir all that into the mix. Uh, you also can't buy this stuff after the fact, right? So we do want some future future planning for clients to say, okay, you know, we're we're hoping for expansion and growth in this life, not retraction. So let's plan for that. Right. right? Well, and that's the thing about umbrella policies is, you know, you say, well, you might need a 10 or $20 million umbrella policy. And people, you know, kind of have that initial reaction of like, oh my, $10 million worth of insurance, what's that going to cost me? And I found that, you know, umbrella policies are pretty dirt cheap. Very affordable for what we're talking about. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking a $10, $20 million policy. It, that kind of leads me into my next question is how's the high net worth insurance market, if if that's the right term for it, how, how's the high net worth insurance market different from the rest of the market? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and one that we, we get, 
uh, a lot, but also by way of sort of the education for clients, right? And the, so it's a, I'll, I'll start with the concept of sort of go where you fit, right? Just in the same way that certain investment strategies aren't for everybody, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first thing is that you have to qualify in uh, to those companies. And, and when I say those companies, and to your point that the market, uh, there's there's really you know six companies, five, six dedicated to that space. That's it. Um, and so we're talking about folks like Chubb, AIG private client, nationwide private client, Pure, Cincinnati, and a newer company called Vault. So that's the entire you know marketplace of, of carriers that are really heavily dedicated. There's a couple of specialty markets here and there, but those are the main ones. And so uh, to be with those companies, there's minimum qualifications uh, that a client would have to have. And, and I'll uh, round it simply to say they're all a little different for every state. So asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. But uh, you typically need a, the cost to rebuild the primary residence or, or a residence uh, in excess of a million dollars. Okay. So, you know, in the DC market, that could be a property that's worth, you know, a million and a half and up from a market value perspective, right? Right. Um, so, counting the real estate. That's right. So that's right. Um, so if we're, we've already narrowed the field, um, on a national basis pretty heavily in, in that moniker. Right. Um, and so the reason that they, they dedicate themselves to sort of there and up is in a couple of key areas. I mean, there's many, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of general ones for the audience. So when we have a house that's worth, or that costs in excess of a million dollars to rebuild the sensitivity on the number, the dwelling coverage being right, uh, becomes increasingly more important. And traditional insurance companies, if you have, um, you know, a a million dollar limit on your house and house burns to the ground, they're going to give you a million dollars plus an additional 25% in the event of a total loss. Okay. Uh, To serve as a buffer, if there's a spike in the, you know, materials costs or what have you. Right. Now, that assumes that the million dollars was right. Okay. So, you know, first, was that the right number? Right. Um, a lot of times people, you know, sort of by inertia, um, you know, the policy doesn't keep up with, you know, really being where it should be. Right. So, uh, but let's say that it is, and, and the max we're going to get is, you know, that million dollars plus 25%. As you can imagine, and, and as you add, you know, zeros, or as that number increases, um, being off by five or 10% is a bad day, <laughs> right? So for anybody, I don't care the net worth, nobody wants to hear that. Right. So uh, the the way the, uh, when done properly, um, these the insurance markets that I mentioned in the high value space, they won't put a cap. So when you're a client of, let's say, you know, Chubb, uh, they're going to go out and do an insurance appraisal of the property. And many insurance companies do this, but they're going to just decide whether or not they agree with the dwelling limit. Let's say it's a million dollars or I'll use 2 million. If it's 2 million, if they think it's a million nine or 2.1 after they look at it, uh, they're going to adjust the limit accordingly. But with that comes a sleep at night that they're going to pay no matter what. So if the house were to burn to the ground, and let's say in the market we're in, where the price of lumber is up, you know, a ridiculous yeah. amount and everything else. Yeah. That's right. Let, let's say it's, you know, four million to rebuild at the time of loss. They're going to ride you all the way up. So it's the ultimate sleep at night 
knowing that the strength in the legal language of the policy is guaranteed full value replacement costs, not just replacement costs. They're going to ride you all the way up. There's no ceiling. So that's sort of the main thing. Uh, there's the, the other areas that I find critical for clients are in the way that these companies settle claims. So let's say it's not a total loss. Again, that was a 2%er, right? You just said that earlier, Andrew, let's not focus on it, right? Let's say it's the water backup that trashes 50 grand worth of furnishings in the living room. Okay. Um, in that instance, traditional insurance, the way it works is they would come out and say, okay, Eric, you had 50 grand worth of stuff in here, but it's all 10 years old. So we're going to give you the actual cash value for now, 10 grand, which is actual cash value being replacement cost minus depreciation, right? We're going to give you that for now. And then when you go replace it, all these items, send us the paperwork and the receipts and we'll pay you the difference to 50, right? For my clients, um, and most people just go along with that because they think that's the way the world works, right? right. Uh, for, for my clients, it's 50 grand, you know, write me a check for 50 grand. And if I want to turn that room into a yoga studio, that's my prerogative, right? right? Okay. Um, so, it, so the flexibility and, and sort of the uh, offensive nature that these insurance companies go through the claims process, uh, not stylistically, but actually in the language, um, is very critical at the time of loss. And having that flexibility of choice um, and, and removing the emotion of you know constantly having to prove yourself to an insurance company, meaning defensive, mm -hmm. um, is a very liberating thing. And again, most people don't know unless they've been through it, but it can be uh, we get calls to consult for you know friends of clients or other things uh, constantly because they're being put through the ringer and being judged for having expensive luggage and they, they just they're not with the right carrier right. you know right I want to change so a couple couple of key points yeah I I had on my list here uh, of things to ask you uh, it, and this came about because it was just yesterday. Um, we had a meeting here, and it seems like we have a meeting every week on this, of security, cybersecurity, right? You know, cyber crimes are, are a pretty pervasive issue for everyone, I guess. Are, is there anything that we can do? Are there any insurance, personal insurance products that we can get to kind of mitigate identity theft or, you know, what have you? Yeah, so... Um there's many insurance, uh, homeowners insurance policies today will, will cover some limit of identity theft, but in that, uh, that's sort of the, um, for you and I, we would think of that in the old fashioned sense, which is, you know, just the cost to hire consultants to help rebuild our credit or, you know, uh, yeah, do the paperwork needed to get our life back in order. Right. So it's an expense coverage today. What people are worried about is someone took over my email and I wired money to the wrong place and I got duped, right? Um, and that's the most common cyber, it's called social engineering fraud, where someone's tracking behind the scenes, all the behaviors and, you know, uh, this is no longer as simple as uh, the old email we all used to get saying, I'm trapped in Zimbabwe, send me $8,000. And, right. you know, you're like, who does that, right? Uh, now the hackers are highly sophisticated. They're, they're sending real emails, um, you know, not, what appears to be real ones because they've taken over, you know, uh, servers and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a scary world out there. Um, many people wire money or send money electronically. 
Uh, it's very easy for people to step in and change account numbers and routing numbers and uh, poof, the money's gone. So there, to answer your question, uh, there, there are products within the high value insurance space. A couple of the companies, uh, Pure was the first company to come out with a product that uh, will replace the actual money. So not like the expense of identity theft, but re replacing the money that got duped out of our account. Um, Chubb and you know the others are sort of following suit, sort of state by state. Um, so that's coming very quickly into the marketplace. Uh, we've been working with a specialty company uh, that I can't name yet, but you know, that, that will be out in the near future uh, so that people that aren't with a high value company, let's say, could procure that coverage. Okay. And uh, hopefully that'll be out, you know, at some point in 21. So uh, insurance, you know, markets move like molasses, as I've joked with you, but, um, you know, they, they're, they're getting there, um, you know, to, to keep up with the times and, and have a solution. It is a rampant problem. You're right. Yeah. So it sounds like help is on the way. Help is on the way. Okay. Yeah. Now you also, uh, beginning of that answer, you had said that my homeowner's policy might cover some things, but what if I bought my policy 10 or 15 years ago before it, this was kind of a thing and I've never really looked at it. Does that policy automatically update or do I need to go back in and ask about it? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, some carriers um, and, and some situations, yes, they, you know, they, they are required to sort of update language. They have to file for changes with, with each state to update their forms to sort of keep up the times and a myriad of ways. But, um, you know, as, as a safety net, uh, I'm always advising people, you know, if it's not, if it's not really clear in the policy, then, you know, make the phone call and, and confirm what, what do I have? What does it cover? Uh, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Andrew, we're, we're, we're running up, uh, against our time limit here, but I do have another question for you. Sure. And, you know, COVID has affected everyone's life over the last year, almost going on a year and a half now, right? And as, as we were going through it, it was probably a few months into it, and I'm sitting at my desk and I'm looking at my car in the driveway. And I realized I haven't driven the darn thing in about three or four months. And no sooner than I had that thought, it was probably a week later, I heard, well, these insurance companies are, are going to start rebating back some of the premium because we're not driving, right? Miles driven right. and fallen and, um, you know, we're, we're still paying full boat. So I waited a while longer and uh, I called my insurance company and asked and they said, well, yeah, we're going to be rebating back premiums, but we just don't know how much yet. And I was like, okay, you know, that was satisfying enough, quite frankly, at the time because um, a lot of other things going on in my mind. Um, so I was happy to hear that I was getting some sort of rebate of premium back. They weren't going to write me a check. Um, and as time went on, I kind of looked and, um, I didn't really see it, 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 a good amount come back to me. Well, it wasn't, wasn't substantial. It would have been right? a couple of yeah. bucks. So, you know, I'm cheap. I know that. Um, but am I being greedy here? It just didn't seem like I got enough for not driving the car for a year. No. And, and look, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and what I, what I'll tell you, and I, I know we're, we're tight on time is that, you know, this started with, you know, state farm, of course, saying, you know, $2 billion pledge that they're going to get back. And everybody started following suit. Right. Right. The, the math on 2 billion 
um, when you're talking about tens of millions of policyholders, um, and this isn't a knock on State Farm, it's all of them, um, you know, is is barely lunch money per vehicle, mm-hmm. right? Um, so while helpful to say it in the aggregate, the effects, you know, kind of per vehicle and per client is very diminuous. It is something, and we're all grateful to get anything. Um, the challenge that I sort of have is that the auto insurance industry forever has been a problem, wildly unpopular with dist- or, uh, unprofitable with distracted driving and the cost of lawsuits these days, everything else. And mm-hmm. um, pricing continues to go up and up and up. And uh, meanwhile, consumers needed to go down, down, down. So in COVID, ironically, there was a chance for the industry to actually sort of recover because people were driving less, which uh, in my opinion would have had a, a better long-term effect on rates as opposed to rebating these fractional amounts that are, um, you know, almost more emotional than they are actual, you know, a help, right? Uh, so there's there's too much sort of uh, uh, unprofitability historically in that world for them to be able to say, hey, this year's on us, right? And they also can't underwrite for people. Uh, you know, we're all saying we're driving less. There's no way for anyone to actually know that right. for certain, right? So there's going to be a cost uh, of risk. They can only discount it, you know, so much depending on the company. So that's sort of my thought there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on today. Hopefully we can convince you to come back on again sometime down the road. Um, Always for you, Eric. You know that. (laughs) But but if someone wants to get a hold of you, how do they go about that? They can go to our website, which is howard-insurance.com or howard-insurance.com and and find us there. And, uh, you know, again, we... Uh, are happy to speak to any of your audience over any of these matters or others and I greatly appreciate your time and a uh, big fan of everything that you're doing and, and always willing to come back. Andrew, thank you so much. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. So we've run a little bit longer than I usually like to go, but I hope you enjoyed hearing what Andrew had to say. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I have a new stock I've been buying and I'll share that with you on the next podcast. But until then, remember, It's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. I'm Eric Whiteman, and this has been Common Sense Investing. to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talk about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and are not necessarily those of the XML Financial Group. I typically own and trade the securities I'm discussing, both personally and for my clients, but not all of them. Likewise, employees of XML and our affiliate broker-dealer may be trading and providing advice regarding the securities I mentioned to their clients as well. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, you should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I suggest you get someone who's qualified in those areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. 
in investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. I like to make projections and other forward-looking statements, which are just that, opinions, and are not actual results and are only valid as of the date of this recording. Things change constantly. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.